May we encounter you now in your word. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. Here's where we've been. Israel has left Egypt now 40 years ago. We are at the other side of a 40-year wilderness wandering. And there are preparations before we enter into this place of great fruitfulness. And it's been, for the most part, death, death, and defeat. But it's all actually on the better side of it. In chapter 19, we saw the death of the cow of Egypt so we could trade it in for God's power. In chapter 20, we saw the death, in essence, of Moses' worldly family to better embrace God's family. And in chapter 21, we saw then the defeat of the opponents for God's victory, four great battles, the battle over our past in verses 1 through 4, when the king of Arad, who dwelt in south, took captives from the people of Israel, and they took a vow and said, God, if you deliver us, we will then annihilate these cities. And then, of course, it takes us through Hormah, Hor, and how do we get those victories of the past? We get to the Red Sea where we belong. In verses 5 through 9, we saw the battle over the pleasant, as we had to go around Edom that didn't let us through. And as we couldn't go around, or couldn't get through, but walk around it, we became, we read that the souls became very discouraged and God sent fiery serpents. How do we see the battle won? It tells us that we see the symbol of our sin on a stick. We see Jesus hanging on the cross, and that changes everything. In verses 10 through 20, we saw the battle over the praise as it starts with a town called Murmur. And we work to the next town, which is called Ruined at the Cross. And from there, we get to the well. And at the well, we find ourselves overflowing. Listen, there's two different ways to praise. There's the way that somebody plays a song and you sing it because, after all, isn't that what we do? On the other side of it, it tells us that if we're filled with this Holy Spirit, and we're not talking about just something esoteric and tingly and shaky. We're talking about for the purpose of absolute surrender, for God's empowerment to do His will, His way. What it says is to be being filled with this Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to God. That song becomes a natural product of God filling us. And we need to get to the well. So how do we see the battle over the past? We get to the Red Sea. How do we see the battle over our pleasant, in other words, contentedness? See Christ on the cross. How do we see the battle over our praise to actually find ourselves genuinely praising him? Let our murmur be ruined at the cross and get to the well. And then finally in verses 21 through 35, which then tags us right into our text here, it was the battle over our progress. We were bordering the Amorites, and because of that, the Amorite king Zihon attacks, and for which then we fight and see victory. And then for the first time in the history of Israel, this vagabond, ragamuffin group of people that were just slaves, set free, have now gone on the offense and started taking land. By the end of the chapter, we see even Bashan's king, King Og, who then is standing before them, and they say, and God says, do not fear him, I've delivered him into your hand. And we, what we find is, is that when our eyes are on God, and we're there where we belong, well, guess what? We are undefeatable. So therefore, we need to find another battlefront. If the enemy is going to gain any ground, he's going to have to hit another battlefront, because this isn't working anymore. This persecution isn't working. This kind of deep-browed, scary-looked, could-kill kind of thing. It isn't working. So the next few chapters become the battle over our faithfulness. In the simplest sense, what we're going to see is a character you might be familiar with. His name is Balaam. You might say Balaam. 
And Balachim, by the way, is a character who is going to symbolize somebody who is out in essence to use the spiritual world against Israel. What we're going to see over the next few chapters is that a spiritual battle is taking place and Israel is ignorant of the whole thing. I don't want you to miss that. Israel is down in a valley, that area where they had looked from Pisgah, and remember in the last chapter, where they looked down upon the wilderness. Now they're in that wilderness. Now they're in that empty area, letting God be their source, their supply, their sustenance. And while they're there now, there is a spiritual battle that's going to take place above them, and they're going to be completely unaware of the whole thing. Now there are some that would teach you, the more you're aware of it, the more you could get up and fight. What you're going to find is, is that the battle over the next few weeks is going to be actually a battle for us to remain faithful. That will really be the greatest battle on our side. So look at it with me. Verse, chapter 22, verse 1. Then the children of Israel moved and camped in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Across from Jericho, do you know why that's important? Because we know that that's where we're going to cross over and fight our first battle on the other side of the Jordan, which means we are now in position to cross over. And it says then in verse 2, now, Balak, can you say Balak? Balak means waster, annihilator. Terminator. That's what his name means. So the Terminator, son of Zippor. Can you say Zippor? Now there's more than five. You give it a try. Come on. Zippor. Does that sound familiar at all to you? There was a girl. That's the masculine. The feminine adds an ah to the end. Zipporah. Does that sound familiar? Who is that? That's Mo's wife. Now, Moses' wife, that's the Zipporah. And it means the same thing, little bird. Only in this case, it's a little masculine bird. Zipper. I'm a little zipper. Saw all that Israel. And so, Balach, that's the waster, the son of little bird. Saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was exceedingly afraid of the people because they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. Now, put a little context to this. Moab, this is what we read in chapter 21. In chapter 21, verse 26, it tells us that the Amorites had defeated Moab. Are you with me so far? So when Moab and Amorites fought, who won? Let me say this again. You didn't know there would be a test, huh? Was this like, is this coma time? Do you want me to wake up and up? Okay, listen. Amorites had defeated Moab. So when Moab and the Amorites fought, who won? Thank you. Who? I'm sorry. Say it loud enough to wake up the rest. Who? The Amorites won. What's the problem with that? Well, in the last chapter, Israel had defeated the Amorites. So when Israel fought the Amorites, who won? Israel. So if Israel beat Amorites and the Amorites beat Moab, how do you think Moab feels about Israel? Get it? Okay, good, because I don't want to talk too loud and wake up the rest of you yet. So Moab, now that's the country, daughter of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. Literally, the name means like his dad. Said to the elders of Midian, stop. Now, maybe some of you are familiar with this story. I don't want you to miss this. Why is Midian so important? Because Moses spent 40 years with the Midianites. 
Does that sound familiar? And Moses got a wife from the Midianites. What was her name again? Zipporah. So the Midianites were people that were familiar with Moses. And one of the high priests of Midian was a guy we know as Jethro. And who is that? Moses' father-in-law. Interestingly enough, they have quite a bit of understanding of the people of Israel. Are you with me on this? Because that's where this clown, Velachim, is going to come from. And we wonder, how does he know this God, this Elohim that we know? Could it have been from Moses' days? We really don't know. People call the guy an enigma because he really does use the power of God, calls on him as his God, and yet the guy's a total bozo. Which tells you, by the way, God uses total bozos. Are you aware of that? And before you want to point at someone else and go, I can't believe God could use him, God could use you too. That's the point. And if you point at someone that God is using when you're not being used, what does that look like? So Moab said to the elders of, Israel, of, of Midian, sorry, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. Have you ever seen an ox lick up grass? And then just eats it. Obviously the grass isn't putting up a great deal of fight. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. And so he sent messengers to a guy named Balachim, the son of Beor, at Pethor, which is near the river, duh, of course we all knew that, in the land of the sons of his people to call him. Okay, quick question, ready? Where is Pethor? Thank you. Where is it? Near the river. What river is he talking about? Yeah, see? It's the river of the Euphrates. Now, the Euphrates River primarily runs around what two major countries? Go north. It's Iran and Iraq. That's the Euphrates River. So that's where this guy is. We know him as Balaam or Balachim. By the way, in the, te- in the New Testament, for what it's worth, there are three specific mentions of this guy. And listen to me on this. The first is in 2 Peter 2.15, when we read about the way of Balor, of Balachim, by the way. And that way is a way where he loved the wages of unrighteousness. The second is in Jude 1.11, and that tells us about the error of Balachim, when it says that they have run greedily into the error of Balachim. The third, when Jesus is speaking to the church in Pergamos in Revelation 2.14, he speaks about the doctrine of Balachim, which, by the way, interesting is, does anyone even know what Pergamos means? Pergamos means mixed marriage. And it isn't like white and black. It isn't like Asian and something not Asian. It's the mixed marriage between those that love God and those that don't love God. Which, by the way, tends to be the problem of the church in Pergamos. By the way, also the doctrine of Balachim we will get into in the weeks to come. So, by the way, the New Testament speaks of the way of Balachim, the error of Balachim, and the doctrine of Balachim. This guy is being sent for because he is a prophet for hire. He is a for-profit prophet. And so they sent messengers, verse 5, to Balachim, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people, to call him, saying, Look, a people have come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse this people for me. 
for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. Does that sound familiar, by the way? comes right out of Genesis 12. See, now what Balak recognized, this king of Moab, what he recognized is that the battle was a spiritual battle. It will always be a spiritual battle. Their God against our God, our God against theirs. Hey, these, these battles that we want to jump into and we have little knowledge and all we see are some people must be suffering in Gaza or people must be suffering in Israel or we see something somewhere in Africa and these people are suffering over here and it all depends on what side the media spins it. You don't realize how much of that is a battle between gods. That's the issue. There are places in the world right now where the, for instance, in, I don't know if you know, part of the Muslim coalition that is in the Philippines, do you know what their sign is? It's a star of David with a line through it. That's the symbol? Here's the point. As though what Balak is aware of, we are less aware of than he is. And what's so funny is, we can get so off on what the spiritual battle is in Scripture, that we're fighting a battle that isn't even a spiritual battle anymore. Or if we are fighting it, we're losing God never told us what we needed to do is spend an hour in a conga line and stomp on a beanie baby that's supposed to look like Satan. Although nowhere in Scripture do I ever read that he's red with horns and a pitchfork. And say that that's our winning the spiritual battle. If you read Ephesians 2 to see what the spiritual battle really looks like, it's a battle over staying. When you read 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you realize that the battleground is your mind, your thought life. Don't believe me. Search it for yourself. Find out. Here he says, please come curse it, because we know this is a battle of our God against theirs. And that is why, for instance, when Sennacherib, by the way, starts to mouth off to the people, and that's in 2 Chronicles 32.13, he says to the people, Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of the other lands? Where were the gods of those nations and those lands in any way? Were they able to deliver their their lands out of my hand? See, what Sennacherib is doing, by the way, is he's reviewing, he's going, no other God's been able to stop us. And of course, the response is, well, that's because they aren't real. It's not only that, but notice, by the way, in Christians in 1 Samuel 5, 2, that when spoils are taken from a defeated area, what do they, where do they bring them? They bring them into the temple of their God. In 1 Samuel 5, 2, when the Philistines took the Ark of God, what did they do with it? They brought it to the temple of their god, Dagon. Half fish, half man kind of guy. Sound familiar? Because he's going to be also worshipped by the Assyrians. And of course, if you know the story, that the next day they go in and that thing's on its face before the Ark, they have to prop it up. Hey, if you have to pick up your god and prop him back up, you've got the wrong one. If you have to protect your god, you've got the wrong one, baby. Because if you spend all your time protecting it, how can it spend its time protecting you? But not only that, because they thought gods were territorial, for instance, they were always trying to find the place. And this is going to come playing into, especially next week, how important it is to find the right location. You know what they say, how those three things that are important? Location, location, location. Certainly the case in this. In 1 Kings chapter 20, for instance. In 1 Kings chapter 20, <clears throat> by the way, we have a fight that's happening. And as the fight's happening, Achav, by the way, And as it's happening, it says, The man of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and says, Thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said, The Lord God is the Lord of the hills, but he's not a God of the valleys. Therefore, I will deliver this great multitude in your hand. See, the king of Assyria, I'm sorry, of Syria, Ben-Hadad, is fighting after the people. And what happens is they fight up in the hills. And as they fight up in the hills, well, then they get defeated. So they're like, you know what the problem is? Their God must be the God of the hills. So let's go take them down into the valley and let's fight them there. 
So let me ask you something. Is your God the God of your hills and your valleys? Because I've learned that becomes, that's one of the telltale signs of a very weak walk with Christ. Well, maybe those high moments you're walking with the Lord, but those low moments you're not, or the other way around. For some, he's the God of the valleys, your valleys, but not your God of your hills. What's clear is he's the God of all, by the way. And no wonder why then God goes and systematically starts taking down these gods in their battlegrounds, by the way. When Moses delivered the people and took down all the gods of Egypt, where was he? And he was in Egypt. That's where he was. Because we wanted, God wanted to basically give these false gods the home court advantage in all of these cases. Does that make sense? When, by the way, Jonah goes to preach and to take down their god, bleached white from a fish, going to tell people about their fish god being a lie and that they're toast, they need to repent. It's kind of fun that he's bleached white from a fish. Don't you think that's a little interesting? And when it says that the fish barfed him onto the shore, you are aware of the fact that he's 900 miles away from where he's supposed to be. It isn't like the, unless the fish really launched him, he had a lot of why, a long way to walk, bleached white in the sun to make it even nicer and stinkier by the time he got there. If you remember the story with Gideon, when he has the before he's going to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and do the work of the Lord in Judges 6:25, he has to take down the Asherah pole, which by the way was the place everybody went to worship, and he took it down right there. Right, he took the pole right down. Do you remember the story of, ba- of Elijah, Eliyahu, taking on the prophets of Baal? No, but understand, Baal means master. So you'll find Baal, and then there'll be all these other words. That isn't the same God always. It'll be like the master of this, or the master of that, or the master of destiny, and the master of power, whatever. But, they're, you know, they're different guys. Baal's just sort of the, you know, insert second word here kind of thing. He's like a template. But remember when Elijah took on the prophets of Baal? Do you know, by the way, where he did that? It was on Mount, on Mount Carmel. In a place to this day that's called Mubarak, the place of burning is what they call it to this day. Why was that important? Because Baal was supposed to live on that mountain, ride on a bull, and throw lightning bolts for fun. So when he said, let's go up to the mountain, kill a bull, and wait to see who throws lightning, do you see how he gave Baal every possible chance to show that he was actually total phony? We're afraid of being called to the carpet. They weren't. And Balak, by the way, has no problem recognizing here that this is a spiritual battle and he's for hire to help them. Verse 7. So the elders of Moab. Does that make sense? Are you following me on this? We need to get these people cursed because they're undefeatable because their God seems to be stronger than our God. I think you're on to something. So the elders of Moab and the, el- I'm sorry, yeah, the elders of Midian departed with a diviner's fee. Now this guy's for hire. In their hand... And they came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. And he said to him, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. The word Lord is that tetragram, Y-H-V-H, Yahweh, Yehovah, whatever term you want to add to that. That's the name that we use. He's using the same name. Notice it says, I, okay, wait here with me and I'll go check with the Lord. Look at the end of verse 8. Kind of point, a real important point that you can miss. Notice it says, So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. Quick question, where did the princes of Moab stay? These should be very simple questions, right? I mean, if you fail at these, we really got issues. So God came to Balaam at night. And this is now Balaam's first encounter with God. And he said, Who are these men with you? Or however he would say it. 
Now, God knows. When God asks a question, by the way, you're aware of the fact that it isn't because God's lacking information. God's asking a question like this because he wants you to hear you answer. Does that make sense? Adam, where are you? Well, I heard your voice and I hid. Do you hear yourself talking? Do you hear how crazy that sounds? Didn't we used to walk to this garden together all over the place? And now you're afraid? Do you hear yourself talk? So, Balaam, he says, so who are these men? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent to me, saying, Look, a people have come out of Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to overpower them and drive them out. Now, notice here, that is his mission. The king is coming, and I'm hiring you for a mission. Bum, 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 bum. What's the mission? Curse the Israelites. Are you with me? So here's a real, real tough question. What was the mission they were trying to hire Balaam for? Okay, let me try it again. You're almost there. Some of you, thanks for answering. What was the mission they were trying to hire Balaam for? To curse the Israelites. Did you get that? Okay, they have fee. They're ready to pay. And they're asking. Now, God says to Balaam in verse 10 or 12, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people because they are blessed. Did you get that? God says that is not an acceptable mission. God says, no way. If you do that mission, you will self-destruct in five seconds. It is an unacceptable mission. Are you with me on that? If you're a parent, this is going to be very eye-opening. If you're living with your parents, you're about to get busted. Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balach, Go back to your land, for the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say why the mission would fail. Did you notice that? Why would the mission fail? Because they're blessed. They're blessed because they're his. This guy, Belachim, went to God and said, God, I, want, I'm almost, I'm, I could be hired to curse these guys. And God said, no way, they're mine, they're blessed. But now hear me on this. We're starting to see symptoms. Why does Belachim really want to go with them? Money, baby. This guy has offered a diviner's fee. But notice he tells them, I can't go. He doesn't say, I won't go. He says, I can't go because God won't let me. He never says anything about the people or that this is an impossible mission. Now hear me on this. Is any of you familiar with the term cubit in Scripture? It's kind of an important term because it is a measuring term that is used for just about everything cubits, six cubits, eight cubits. When we start looking at things like the ark, we see it measured in cubits. A cubit is the distance from the bottom of your elbow to the tip of your longest finger. Now, I'm not going to touch you, but try this with me. We call this a term we have called the fatal cubit. Are you with me on this? The fatal cubit is this distance. You ready? If you took this and put it at your head, it would make its way right about where your heart is. Try it for yourself so you can see. Don't worry, I won't smack you in the face. This is like one of those elementary school games. That is the fatal cubit. 
Because what this seems to know, this seems to not know. And what this is rich enough to give good counsel, can argue doctrine, can fight over elements of the finer points of things, yet the heart is scrambling for otherwise. And this becomes the battle of Belachim. And by the way, this is where we start to get exposed to, because the symptoms are right before us. Please hear me in this. His head is full of understanding. He's aware of who the right God is. He's aware of who the right Lord is. He's even going to call him his God. He won't call him his Lord, but he will call him his God. And he's smart enough to give counsel, but his heart is entangled and it's strangled with the world around him. See, though his head knows what's right, his heart craves for what's wrong. And the great counsel that he could give would even take it himself if he could give it. Have you ever had God play back film for a moment of the counsel you've given somebody else only to realize the counsel really wasn't even for them so you could hear you say it so that you could do it? Or am I the only one that gets that kind of treatment? And all of a sudden as I start to see it, let me tell you how, how this starts to look in symptoms. As Doc Holiday here, my surname really is Holiday, as Doc Holiday starts to look at this, listen. The moment you start telling us that God is the problem, he's the spoil sport, he's keeping you from something, it shows me that your heart is hungry for something God is not allowing. Does that make sense? And that shows you that already there's a problem with the fatal cubit. But I want, and I hunger for, and you know, I know God says this is wrong, that's the no, that's here, but... I was born this way, but I crave this, but I want this, but my situation's a little different. Do you know how many times somebody comes in for counsel and they'll even say, I know this is what scripture says, but my situation is so unique as if God went, oh my goodness, why didn't I think of that? I should have put that in scripture as an escape clause. But you don't understand the woman I live with, or you don't understand the man I live with, or you don't understand my boss then leave and work elsewhere. You're actually living in a country. You can do that. But I want. But I feel. But I need. That isn't your brain talking. That's your heart talking. And from the abundance of it, your mouth is now the overflow valve speaking and saying, i got to have this. Even if God doesn't give me it, i got to have it. Well, that's a symptom, isn't it? And you know how it sounds at first? God won't let me go. That's what it sounds like. And the moment you start going from that, and you're not talking about why God has blessed these people, and I start to realize, all of a sudden I start to look for ways to try to bend my no into a maybe. As a parent, I recognize this often. The moment I say no, my children are trying to figure out which no that is. Does that make sense? Because there's the no, and by the way, we have a couple terms for things like that. Non-negotiable means that's always going to be a no. And by the way, it's seldom used because I'm careful what hills to die on, because when it's a no, it's a no. I don't want to talk about this anymore because this is, a, this is an issue of standard. But then there are other things where they look and they go, no. Is that like a no for now? Is that kind of like a situational no? Is that a cultural no? Is that kind of a no because you're in a mood and I should ask later? Is that the kind of no that I should go ask dad? Because mom, you're quicker with the no. 
you know, why, should, why did I even ask mom in the first place? And there's all these ways that because I want something so bad, I start looking for even the smallest hint of a maybe in there. Does that make sense? I'm sniffing for maybes is what I'm doing here. Well, here's the problem. If I was really truly seeking to bless and to please God, would it ever even be a topic of discussion to curse anyone? Do you think there's ever be a time where God's going to look and go, Darn now, I think what would really bless me today is if you went and cursed all of the people in Islington. Do you ever think that's going to happen? So there's a spiritual battle. And that spiritual battle is, I know what God says. I know that. But I want. I need. I feel. I'm so. And that's where we're at this moment. And he has to go back after the next, after speaking to God and says, no, because I love these people. These people are blessed. And he has to go back and he says, none of that. All he says is, God won't let me. Verse 14. So the princes of Moab rose and they went to Balach. Remember, that's the king. And they said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Notice what part they left out. They left out the whole Lord part. Did you notice? Here's how it went. God said, no, they're a blessed people, they're mine. That's where it started. Then Balaam turns to these guys, the princes, and says, no, God won't let me. They turn and they talk to the king and they say, he won't go. Stubborn, stubborn punk profit for hire. So what do you do if you really want? Remember, the king really wants these people cursed. So what do you do? Well, you up the ante, don't you? And that's exactly what's going to happen here. Now listen. So Balak sent again, verse 14, or 15, I'm sorry. Balak sent princes more numerous and more honorable. Now, I don't know how many princes he has on staff and which of them are less honorable. But this is a consistent thing. Remember, Jesus tells a story about a vineyard owner in Matthew 21, where he talks about when it came to vintage time to go and pick the, to gather the grapes, he sent some of his servants, and they beat him up and stoned him and even killed a few, and then he sent more servants, and finally he says, I'll send my son. So the idea of upping the ante, well, that's what he's doing here. Now, what Balak is showing, the king, is he's showing he could be just as stubborn as Balakim. Does that make sense? Oh, you're holding out on me. This is about this. Well, the ante grows from a fee that I would give you. Now to fame and fortune. That's what I'm going to offer you now. That's how seriously desperate this king of Moab is to get these people cursed. Are you following me? So they came to Balachim and they said to him, now these are the more honorable and more princes. Thus says Balach, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. Do you see that? Now the question gets asked, what's stopping you? And that's the way this plays out. And that's so like the enemy. Because the moment I have to tell you what's stopping me, I immediately have something to blame. And isn't the enemy the accuser? Isn't that what he does? So why are you still single? What's stopping you? I want a godly man. Well, why did you want a godly man? Because God said that would be the best thing. Oh, so God's stopping you. Why hasn't God brought you a godly man yet? Oh, but I need the right job. Why isn't God, why, what's stopping you? Well, I guess it must be God because he's kind of sovereign and in control, right? Do you see how that plays out? 
So he says, look, not, nothing. What's stopping? What's hindering you, Blachim? Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. Listen, I will honor you greatly. In other words, I'll make you famous. And I will do whatever you say to me. I'm going to make you rich. Therefore, please come curse this people with me. The enemy's always going to play this with you, by the way. You know, I can make you, I can give you all your dreams right now. Well, God's not giving it. Oh, what a party pooper. I have it. Have what are you looking for? A good guy? What do you want? Gorgeous? What do you want? Okay. Let's, and he starts flipping through like actors or whatever. And you know, strange is, when he does that, it's your finger moving things. You're aware of that, right? And you start looking going, well, if I ever really wanted somebody, he'd have to look like that guy. And he'd have to have that kind of, and he has to sing like that guy. He has, ooh, and he has to dance like that guy. And oh, he has to, oh, you know. And by the time you've done, you've like listed out this person. And then you like handed it to God. because, But God's like, look at, I've got somebody so much better than this. But the enemy says, but I could give this to you now. Aren't you tired of waiting? Aren't you tired of this not happening the way you want it to? You realize that time is one of the greatest displays, opportunities to display your faith, right? So Balaam answered, and he said to the servants, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, which sounds like he's hinting here. I only know that because I've hung out with enough people that pray out loud the things that they need around other people that might be able to give it to him. Some of you know what that's like. And Lord, you know that my shoes are getting old. And Lord, you know that there's a couple you know, people that might be working at a shoe store maybe around us right now. Just, Lord, just speak to any heart at all, anyone. Size 10. I like black. Oh, though Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond the word of the Lord my God. Did you notice that? To do less or more. Now therefore, please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what the Lord will say to me. Now why do you think he has to ask again? Now, listen, here's the thing. Something has changed. Let me ask you again. What was the mission? Right? Okay, what was the mission? To curse the Israelites. What was the mission? When he came the first time, they came with a diviner's fee and a mission. What was the mission? And a diviner's fee. The second time they came in, well, they came with more fee, didn't they? But what was the mission? Same. In other words, the mission never changed, just the benefits seemed to be a little bit bigger. Does that make sense? But God said, the mission is what I said no to. And if the mission hasn't changed, do you expect God to change his mind? But we do that. God says, look at a godly man, no unequally yoked stuff here. A godly woman, no unequally stoked, you know, no, no unequally, you know, you got it, yoked, whatever. Rented lips, I'm sorry. No, you know, I want you I want you growing. I want you in the Word. I want you learning. I want you walking away from that thing. I want you cleaning up. I want to make you holy and I want to make you beautiful. And listen, God really wants to use a church in the world that doesn't look like the world. And I've learned this. The more that I'm like the world, the less that I'm effective in it. And God starts to make us different, full of joy. That's different. Full of contentedness. That's different. Full of love for our enemies. That's different. But then we start sticking out and we start feeling like we're the only one in the party. You know? And then we don't get invited to the party anymore. And you know what's funniest? We would have said to ourselves, I would have said no anyways. I just wanted to be invited so I could say no. Does that make sense to anyone other than me? 
But they don't call and like, mm-hmm. So, okay, so I'm going to go ask the Lord again. But the mission hasn't changed. And God said, the mission is what I said no to. He's like, but they're offering me more. God says, but the mission hasn't changed. Still the same. Because this is more than just a principle here. This is a position God is taking with these people. He loves these people. And he loves you. And he loves you so much that he doesn't want you jumping to your own destruction just so that you can get a little something now for it. And that becomes the problem. So all of a sudden, you're kind of, you notice he's sniffing for hints again. So what happens? God came to Balachim at night. Now this is verse 20. And he said to him, If the men come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the words which I speak to you, that you shall do. Does that sound like God has changed his mind? He has not changed his mind about the mission. That's why he says, only what I say you say. Because he is never going to curse these people. And God is about to use the king's own money to backfire on him. Oh, God's so brilliant. So listen, this is what God said. Now look at Second time, the princes come. And he says, wait here, I'll go check with God, I'll tell you in the morning. Do you remember what happened the first time? God specially noted in verse 8 something, and I try to point it out to you. What did it say at the end of verse 8? They stayed with him. Did you notice God made special notice that those guys stayed with him? Guess what we don't get here? That statement. I kind of get an idea that these guys are a little bit too posh to hang out with this guy. What we're going to find is he has two servants, because it says his two servants, not two of his servants. So I kind of get the idea this isn't like a really fancy place, and this guy is not like a big prophet prophet. It's kind of a little prophet prophet. So he's got two servants, and that's about it. And these guys come very numerous and so forth. They're not staying with him. Does that make sense? So God says, I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If they come to call for you, if, oh, that word I don't hear. Because I'm busy looking for hints. If they come and they call for you and they ask for you to come with them, go with them. But only speak only what I tell you. Does that make sense? You know what he heard? That was a yes. That's all he heard. And it says then, what happened? Balaam gets up and he goes. Gets up and goes. Guess what didn't happen? They didn't come. They didn't ask. They didn't call for him. Did you get that? No, here's the way it works. When your heart, which is a terrible debater because it seems to win every argument with your mind, you talk to people and like, I know he's wrong and he beats me and he's crazy and he's running from the police and I'm in all of this trouble, but I love him. I'm like, run for your life. You're like, but, I gotta get your butt out of there. Oh, I know what my brain says, but my heart's just so dumb. And I'm like, God, I know you said no, but is there a maybe in there somewhere? And God's like, on these very distinct stipulations. And you're like, oh, that was yes. And off you go. There was a crazy movie, and I don't endorse Hollywood, but there's this moment that sticks in my head about a ridiculously dumb film um, called A Man With Two Brains. It was a Steve Martin film way back in the days, back when it was like Technicolor and before they'd had DVDs and all kinds of other things. And I'll tell you another story later, Grandpa. But, but in the movie, this guy, he's, he's kind of a dummy, but he's a brain-serving dummy kind of guy. And you're like brilliant in one area and savant and everything else. And, and his, his wife had died and he's standing at this picture, the mantle, a picture of his deceased wife. And there's this gold digger that's about to take him for everything. 
And he's so blind to the whole thing, he doesn't even see that she's trying to marry him for his money. And he stands, and this, this moment just rings to you because it says, God's constantly reminding me of this moment in my own life. And he stands before this mantle with this giant picture of his deceased wife, and he says, whatever her name is, if there is any reason at all why I shouldn't marry her, and all of a sudden the house starts to shake, wind starts to blow, the picture starts to spin in circles, and you hear, no, no, no! He's getting smacked in the face with all this stuff. And after about five minutes of this, he stands there and he goes, any sign at all, just let me know. I'm going to, but meanwhile, I'm going to take your picture and put it in the closet. And I think, how many times have I gone to the Lord and said, Lord, there's any sign at all you don't want this to happen. And the house is shaking and things are flying and all kinds of stuff is going on. And then after all that, I'm like, any sign at all. You know, and God's like, look at here are the stipulations. And I'm like, stipulations, stipulations, whatever. Oh, I'm going to go for it now because there's a maybe and that sounds like a yes to me. Though none of the things were meant. Now, what if they did come to him? Had they, would they have come in humility? Would they have come to listen? I don't know. But what's clear is God set it up in a way that it really revealed Balaam's heart, Balaam's heart. Does that make sense? That all he really wanted was to go and it really didn't matter? God had some very clear constraints. None of them were met. So Balaam arose, verse 21. And I can't stop here because it just gets too much fun. Don't worry. We're almost there. <clears throat> Balaam arose in the morning, saddled his donkey. What's so great about a donkey? Oh, a few things. First of all, it's the only thing more stubborn than Balaam and Balak combined. I do like that. They do call them the engineers of the Middle East. Are you aware of that? And they're brilliant. Donkeys are where... That's how they build roads to this day in the Middle East. If they're going to go down a hill, they put a donkey at the top of it, and the way that the donkey walks is the safest way. Now, horses don't do that. You know, horses just run. You know, I heard about, you know, heard about my friend that had this place, this horse ranch, where he was a Christian horse ranch, and they were riding their horses, and they're like, this one, when you want to say, you know, when you want to say go, you say, oh, I can't remember what the word was, um, you know, it was hallelujah was the word for go, right? Hallelujah. But if you want it to stop, you say amen. And my friend gets on this horse, and the horse, and, and it's, what is it again? Hallelujah. Man. Okay, so, okay, so, hallelujah. And the thing takes off. And they're like, oh, no, no, you know, the horse always waits until you get out of sync, right? So it can smack you every time, right? And he's like, go, 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 He's like, oh, no, and he sees this cliff coming, and the cliff is getting closer, and the cliff is getting closer. He's like, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. What's the word? Stop, what's the word? Oh, Lord, please, 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 save me. Amen. And the horse stops. He's like, oh, and he's looking over the cliff. He's like, oh, hallelujah. Horses will jump off a cliff. That's the point. That was a made-up story, but I didn't make it up. Mario's going to take that one. No, I'm pretty sure. Oh, you knew it. See, yeah. But listen, he's on a donkey now. And what we're going to find is that this is where it hits the road for us too. Blachem rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and he went literally after the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went. God's like, look it, I didn't tell you to go unless these things were met, and they weren't met. There's always the mission that God refused. That isn't going to change because he's going now. He's deaf, but is deaf to those stipulations because all he wants is a go. God's anger arose because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against them. Now, I want you to recognize, you know why the angel is standing against Balakim? Because Balakim is about to destroy Balakim. And the angel wants to stop him. And this is kind of part of the fun of this. He went and took a stand, and I want you to realize there's three steps to this. Follow me on it. 
It says he was riding on his donkey. And notice it says, and his two servants were with him. Did you notice that? Not two of his servants. That's verse 22. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, which tells us that the donkey had more insight than he did. Standing in the way with his, with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. He avoided it. Belacham struck the donkey on her back to go back onto the road. That's strike one. In 2 Kings chapter 6, when Elijah seems to be probably grumpy because he's sleeping, perhaps his servant looks and sees that the valley they're in is surrounded by an army that obviously is an enemy army. Assuming it's Gehazi comes in and he goes, We're surrounded! Elijah's like, oh God, just open up his eyes. And as he opened up his eyes, the servant looks out and he sees that the surrounding army was surrounded by the army of the Lord. And I wonder how many times all we can see is the first circle. Remember David, when he would take the census, God opened up his eyes, he lifted and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth. That's First Chronicles 21.16. Then the angel stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. Now things are starting to narrow. Do you get that? I mean, they were kind of walking down to an open path. The, the, you know, the donkey sees the angel. He kind of goes away. General avoids it. But now he kind of steers them back. And now there are walls now. Things are a little bit more defined. There's a little less room to go. And as a result of that, it says that the donkey saw the angel of the Lord. She pushed herself against the wall and crushed Belachim's foot. Now for the moment, Belachim is defeated against the wall. So he struck her again. Strike two. Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either left or to the right, or right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she had no place to go. There was no left. There was no right. So she laid down under Belachim. And Belachim's angel was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Play this out with me for a moment. We're almost done, but we just kind of have to do this. I need a donkey. And it's a shame that, like, David's not around because I would always use him as sort of a donkey. So let me see. Is there anyone here who I can use as a donkey? Jay, can I use you for a moment? And that puts you as Belachim because you're just right there. Sweet. Okay. Now I need a good angel. Nathan, will you be a good angel over here? Okay. So here we go. So go ahead and pop on all fours right here for a moment. Would you do that? Okay, just pop on all fours. Okay, but face this way. Okay? Okay, there you go. Okay, no, don't worry, you're not doing it to me. Okay? On all fours, because you're a donkey. So think what a donkey would be like. Okay? Now that puts you, okay, go, go back a little bit. I need a little bit of space. I know we didn't block this out. So, okay, so that, that's good, that's good. Okay, so Belachim, you're kind of there, right? Now you're here. No. How about this is a sword? It says the sword is drawn in his hand. So I'm guessing he's kind of like this, right? So there you go. Now, are you with me on this? Okay, you're kind of writing J. Yeah, okay. And here's the funny thing. You know, at this particular moment, and you don't have to do this. This is just, well, this one's kind of, oh, no, sorry. He's actually, don't worry, he won't do this, but he was beating him with his staff. Okay? Now, imagine at this moment the ESPCA is going mental. Right? You know, which you're aware of was invented 60 years before the protection of children. Okay, so follow me on this, though. Listen to this for a moment. 
It says that the first time, remember, he just kind of, you know, Jade just kind of wandered off. Remember, he's just kind of stubborn thing. He's like, oh, get there, go over there. So he's back on the path, and off the dopey dope. Now they're kind of at walls, and he sees the angel again. And this time he tries to turn, but he runs into a wall, and he snacks poor Bjorn's foot into the wall. And at that point he's like, oh, what are you doing? And he snacks him, right? There you go. And now it's, now he sees him, and now the, listen, there's nowhere to turn. Listen, listen, listen. When you are bent on your sin, your heart is, you gotta follow your heart. No, you don't. Scripture says your heart is deceitful above all things. Do you know what that means? That your heart lies more than Satan does. You know why? Because you believe your heart. Sometimes you go, oh, that's Satan. But your heart's like, oh, that's probably true. And you start to go, at first it's kind of like you're there and you go, okay, it seems like everything's kind of cool. I've got lots of options. And things start to narrow. And sooner or later you're stuck in a place where you can't go left or right. Does that make sense? And the only thing to do at that point is get on your face. And you know who we're learning that from? A donkey. But we've got a lot more to learn from this guy. Girl, though, interesting enough. But God, don't say if I want. So, he starts to beat the donkey. Now, you're in what position? Sword is drawn. Are you with me on this? Now listen. So it says, So Balakam's anger was aroused. He struck the donkey with his staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. Oh, this is such a beautiful moment. Now you go, well, this sounds like a fairy tale. This is so weird. It's only weird because it doesn't happen all the time. And it doesn't happen all the time because we would all think something was wrong. But God can do whatever he wants. I've learned if you get past the first verse in Scripture, the rest is easy. When God created the heavens and the earth, he can do whatever he wants with it. Does that make sense? Now listen, the donkey begins to speak. What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Now, he's going, why you got to treat me like that? And here's the best part. The Balacham, so drunk with desire, gets in an argument with a talking donkey. Is that a little weird to you? Because to me it's a bit strange. And listen to his statement. Balacham said to the donkey, Because you've abused me. Ironic. He's smacking him with the staff, and he's telling him he's abusing him. Right? But listen to the best. He goes, I wish there were a sword in my hand. I would kill you. The funny thing is what the donkey could say is, why don't you borrow his? Sword's drawn. But he can't even see it. Does that make sense? Now listen. What guy in his right mind would kill a talking donkey? I mean, my first thought is, sell him to Shrek the musical. And tomorrow, I'll make a waffle. I would kill you right now if I had a sword. Look at how you've abused me. Okay, go ahead and have a seat, you guys. Thank you. I don't keep you here the whole time. Because it's awkward enough. So, yeah, thank you. Now, please hear me. It's a broken down car that's always worked. They canceled my train or my flight. It's an unexpected injury or illness. It's something that happens that is so out of the ordinary. You would never expect it. You just assume it's going to be what it's going to be. And the bus doesn't show up. You look at your tracker and it says three minutes, two minutes, 25 minutes. Did I miss it? Nothing has driven by. I'm in the boondocks. Nothing has driven by ever. Am I at the end of the world? Is this like bus purgatory? You know what those things are? They're donkeys. That's what they are. They're God's donkeys. 
And all of a sudden, you were going to go to that party and your friend was going to take you to that party. And then your friend, like, gets sick. And you're like, how am I going to get there now? You know, praise God for the donkeys because they don't allow us to run headlong into the sword we were about to get in the face. And we get so frustrated while God is busy saving our lives. Do you get it? Praise God for the donkeys. Because what we're showing at this moment is which one is really the bigger King James donkey in this. And it seems to be Belachim. And there you were on this this career. And then it's like the contract was in hand and then an injury happened. And there you were and everything looked so good. And then it was the death of a friend. And there you were, and you were heading in some direction, and you think, but I seem like I was going so well. Yeah, there's so much that looks right to a man, but in the end it leads to destruction, and we don't even see it sometimes. And there we are, caught up like Balachim. There's something else I could get, and I'm so close to it. No, what you're so close to is getting hurt really bad. And God, by His grace, gave you a donkey. You might be married to a donkey. Fairly likely, they might be married to one too. Your pastor may be your donkey. But in the end of it all, God has donkeys because He loves you. And see, this is the difference. My God is actively involved in your life and mine. Because He wants you. He genuinely, wholeheartedly, absolutely wants you. So let's wrap this up. The donkey says to Balaam, Am I not your donkey since the day you've written? By the way, it's a she, so it's a girl talking. I kind of get that. Am I not your donkey in which you have written ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? In other words, he goes, Don't you think this is strange behavior? A talking donkey is telling you this. Have I ever done this kind of behavior before this point? You know what's so funny? Is that the angel of the Lord just waits for them to work this out. Right? And God will stand there while you argue with your donkey, showing which one's the bigger donkey. Don't you think my behavior's strange? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And am I, am I not been a faithful donkey? Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. Remember that? I wish I had a sword. The angel's like, would you like a sword? I'll give you one upside your head. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Now, if I were the donkey, then I would go, yeah, see? That's what I asked. Struck the donkey three times, I'll tell you what. Listen to him. The words tells us that the donkey and the angel were on the same side. Yes, they were. Ironically, this is the part you can't see. They were on your side. They were busy saving you. Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Literally, you're on the way to destruction. The donkey saw me and turned aside. For me these three times. Uh Uh-huh. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. Now how you feeling? So Balakam said to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. 
I didn't know. You stood in the way against me. Therefore, if it displeases you, I'll go back. The issue isn't whether you're going or not. The issue is the mission. And you were not going to do the mission whether you go back or go. So since you're on your route, let's thwart this mission. And here's the cool thing. When God knocks you off your donkey, and you're on your face, God may do more than just have you not do this bad mission. He may bring you to take it down. Welcome to becoming a double agent, beloved. You've been recruited by the King of Kings to take down the plot of the enemy. And the ironic thing was, you were just hired to do it a moment ago. Isn't that what happened to Saul? And he was on his way to Damascus. And when God knocked him off of his horse, he didn't tell him to go back. He brought him into Damascus because it caused even more powerful of a statement for him to go there where he was than for him to go back. So I said, I've got a better mission for you. But you better stick to it exactly. Malachim now must obey out of sheer survival. And that's what he knows. And I wonder from this point on, every time he wanted to say something, if he looked over his shoulder to see if he saw an angel with a sword drawn. So Malachim went with the princes of Malachim. Which, by the way, apparently, don't, were they there? Did they watch this whole thing? Or were they still ahead of him? Now when Balak heard that Balakim was coming, he went out to meet him in the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the, border, the boundary of the territory. And Balak said to Balaam, Did I not earnestly send to you, to calling for you? Why did you not come to me? In other words, he's going, Why are you so late? You know, I told you this was urgent business. What are you dallying? And what's interesting, though, is I already get a hint here that that heart still isn't completely right, or he would have told him. Do you know what I'm saying? Now, granted, who's going to believe that you argued with a donkey? Just the same. Well, a guy that's hiring you to curse some people, he just might. Because am I not able to, to honor you? And you know what he says? Look, I'm here now. Isn't that enough? Verse 38, and this is our last verse. Balaam said to Balak, Look, I have come to you. Now, have I any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. And I'm probably looking over my shoulder again to see if that angel's there just to make sure. Look, at, as we bring this to a close today and pray, the Lord has this plan for every one of you. And that plan is to bless, not to curse, to give a future and a hope. And not just to give you a future and a hope, but to use you to help bless other people and not curse them. To help bring a future to them through the gift of Jesus Christ. And the Lord, maybe today, there is a part, and if we're honest with ourselves, if we laid our hearts on the table, we would all be throwing up, and we'd be so sick, because they're so full of so many wicked things that we have dolled up and put enough makeup on and enough wood putty and whatever else to make it look like a work of art, but in the end of it all, all it is is just sin. It's just a heart that really struggles with the lordship of the Lord. We could call him my God. Oh my God, you, you saved me. You're my Savior. I'm really grateful that you aren't going to let me go to hell. And next chapter, we'll see as he actually goes and tries his four curses, and they all turn to blessings. It's such a cool chapter. I'm so excited for next week. That in the end of it, he says, oh, let me die the death of the righteous. This is what Balachim is going to say. And I think, why don't you live the life of a righteous? Then you could die the death of one. But it's like you can't live like hell and then expect to earn like heaven at the end of it. But our hearts are hungry for those things. They're full of ourselves and what we think we need and what we think. But if, listen, every good gift comes from the Father of heaven, me lights, in whom there's no shadow of turning. Every good gift. 
If you haven't given it, if he, if he hasn't given it to you, it's not a good gift. It could be a good gift to someone else, it's just not to you. And it says, no good gift or good thing will he withhold to those who walk uprightly. Look at if you're walking with him, he wants to bless you. And if you want to run from him, he's got a donkey or a big fish, whatever animal he wants to use. But I guarantee you, it's going to muck with your plans in a way that you'll have an amazing testimony at the end. And you could say, but God, I feel this way. But God says, this is my plan. But God, this happened. But this is my plan. But God, I feel like I have a right to wig out, a right right to spin out, a right to freak out, a right to be nasty or mean or spiteful or selfish or self-consumed or a black hole or whatever it is because this is what happened. And God says, I didn't change my mission or my mind. This is my position. I love you. I want to use you. Stop being so consumed in you and let me have your heart like I want it. And I've learned, if you hand it to him, he will change it. Isn't that what he promised Ezekiel? See, we need more than a heart dolling up. We need more than just some form of open heart surgery. We need a heart transplant. And my God's big on that. The good news is he won't just replace it with another. He'll replace it with his own. As we go to prayer, beloved, man, you got a donkey in your life right now? You're fighting it? It's slamming your foot against the wall. It's running off. Maybe you just feel like it's running off into the field. Maybe you're in that place where you feel you're in the narrow streets and there's no place to turn. Then get on your face before God. Listen, that's what Jesus did for you and he didn't even earn it. He hung on a cross to pay for every one of our sins. Then that's a God that wants us, that's involved in our life because we were headed to destruction and he had to intervene or we would be permanently destroyed. Because of that, he took your sin and my sin, hung it on himself as he hung and bled and died on that cross so that all of my sin could be paid for. And then, just this scripture promise rose from the dead and offers me new life, a life that isn't running from God, but a life that surrenders to his will. The death at the cross says who I was died. The resurrection says I've got a new mission, a new life. I'm a new creation, a new heart, and that's what God wants to use now. Have you even accepted that gift? If you haven't, I'm going to give you the choice to. And if you have accepted that gift, I'm going to give you an opportunity today with me just to say, God, do whatever you need to. Use my donkeys, do whatever you want. But Lord, let my heart be upon your mission, not my own. That we would say in the end of it all, not get, get some goals and then tell God how you can achieve your goals, but rather not my will, but your will be done. Because I guarantee you there is no will and no plan greater for your life than God. Would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter, for this crazy story of a God that so desperately needed to get his eyes open. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness where we blind ourselves by our own lusts, by our own greed, by our own cravings and desires that we can't see that something's bad because if you're not giving it to us, it's bad. But we are convinced it's good because we've looked at enough pictures of it, we've seen enough flyers and watched enough videos or movies that (coughs) seem to promote it and seem like whatever is good for someone must be good for me too. (coughs) And I realize for some of us, if we were ridiculously wealthy, it would be to our destruction. For some of us, if we were ridiculously popular, socially gifted, it would be to our destruction. Or brilliant. Or talented or whatever, it would be to our destruction. And we don't want that today. 
I know nothing is more important to you, God, than our relationship with you. Nothing. And Lord, let my heart and our hearts here all know that implicitly. Not just our heads know it, but our hearts crave it. So God, I pray today that we would crave you like you crave us. And that our heart would surrender to your will. And that our mind would surrender to your will. That our very spirit, our very being would be consumed and captivated by a craving to say, my soul craves for you like a dry and thirsty ground where there's no water. Oh God, that in the morning we would crave you and sing to you at night on our beds. And that throughout the day it would be clear that we are people delighting in your delight because our hearts are desperate for you. Not just agreeing, but desperate for you. Craving like our daily bread and beyond. Lord, that we would crave you like our every breath. So Lord, for every believer here, myself included, make us people today destroy the fatal cubit and let our hearts be and our minds be and our spirits be absolutely in league with you. Your will, your desire, your heart. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, if you today have not accepted the gift of Jesus, and that's simple, the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we're willing to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. God wants to save you today from what? Your own destruction of you taking your own sins upon yourself, carrying your own guilt and shame. God wants to remove all of that and make you new. But that, because he's a gentleman, he wants your permission. And if today, as I pray this prayer and you listen, if you agree at the end, I ask you to say, Amen. Jesus, be my Lord. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you not perfect. You know that, I know that. I have my own shame, my own regrets, my own failures, my own sins. But your scripture makes clear you died for my sins. Upon a cross of humility, of dishonor, you paid for every crime in my heart. And you died there because the wages of that sin is death. You took every part of my wickedness and you laid it, you let it die on the cross with you. And there, Lord, my price was paid. And just as your scripture promised, after being buried three days later, you rose again. And now you offer me a new life, one with you as my Lord and my love and my life and my light. And I say yes. I say yes, Jesus. I may not understand everything, but I don't want to carry this shame anymore. I don't want to carry this stuff on my shoulders anymore. It's not for me. I give it to you and I say, please wash me clean and make me yours. I'm yours now. And I recognize that there may be battles to be fought for this decision, but there's no greater decision to make. And I ask for you to come and be the Lord of my life. Jesus, be my Lord. Be my Savior. I surrender myself to you now in your name. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen, Jesus, be my Lord. Here we go. Ready? And Amen, Jesus, be my Lord. So Lord, I just pray now your blessing upon this precious fellowship. Use us as a blessing, as a blessing to the people around us, not to curse, but to bless. And Lord, thank you, as much as we hate to say it, thank you for the donkeys. Jesus, in your name. Amen.